Greetings and welcome to the inaugural Nothing Never Happens podcast. The date is March 13, 2017. I'm Tina Pippin, your host on a journey into educational and pedagogical theory and questions of democracy, freedom, and liberatory teaching. The title, Nothing Never Happens, comes from one of my teaching method gurus, Dr. John D. Hendricks, who taught a How to Teach and Think About Teaching course when I was in graduate school. I teach religious studies, gender and women's studies, and human rights at Agnes Scott College, a women's college in Decatur, Georgia, and am continually learning to be a teacher activist. Our first guest, Ira Shore, has graciously agreed to be on the podcast. Professor Shore has a dual appointment at the City University of New York's Graduate Center in both the English and Urban Education PhD programs. Shore is the author of nine books, including my favorite, a talking book with Paulo Freire, done at the Highlander Center in Tennessee in 1986. Shore models for teachers in higher education what it means to take pedagogical theory seriously. And by consistent extension, he models what it is to take students seriously. Welcome, Professor Shore, to Nothing Never Happens. Yes, thank you. Welcome, very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, um, critical pedagogy is about questioning the status quo. And this is not a casual or um, accidental undertaking, but uh, uh, many of us educators uh, embrace it because uh, we know that uh, the status quo is um, uh, unhealthy, unequal, and uh, threatening the planet as well as uh, most of the children who live uh, in, in our nation and becoming uh, more and more difficult for uh, adults in the, in the workforce. Uh, economic inequality is, uh, has become uh, grossly um, exaggerated as well as um, the planet becoming more vulnerable to the global warming, which is uh, producing very erratic and eccentric um, uh, climate events. So, uh, and then we know that the racial injustice and uh, women's inequality stand high on the list and that more of the um, undeserved and uh, disfavored uh, groups in society are uh, on the stage of history uh, demanding equality, and that has to do with our, uh, our gay and transgendered uh, uh, friends. And so we, um, we stand here and we say, uh, yes, a better world is possible, <laughs> and we're not going to uh, tolerate uh, unending war and cruelty and uh, continual looting of the nation by the 1% that uh, we feel we have a, an ethical responsibility to intervene as educators uh, because uh, we stand uh, for uh, research and knowledge and being informed citizens who use our knowledge, uh, the knowledge we gained uh, to improve society, to make things better. That, uh, and so we could say critical pedagogy questions the status quo. You're pointing out uh, a crucial component of critical pedagogy, of the intersectionality of race, class, gender, sexuality, environment, militarism, peace, etc. How does all this fit into your understanding of social justice? And I define social justice 
as a uh, orientation towards democracy, equality, ecology, and peace. Those are the four uh, overriding goals that unite us in this project, even though our practices may differ, differ at the ground level. We come together because we believe that democracy uh, is uh, crucial and is in fact in peril in our nation, mm -hmm. and that e equality is an unfinished agenda for uh, women and uh, people of uh, color and for uh, working people in our society. Mm -hmm. And that e ecology is very high in the list because we cannot tolerate any any more disfoliation of our uh, our planet. We're reaching a, a tipping point, if not already um, uh, there. And uh, peace is very high in the agenda because we uh, the third world war is already underway. Yeah, and we are in World War Three for the past 25 years since the first President Bush invaded Iraq. Mm -hmm. and that permanent warfare. Has, uh, has become a way of life and the, the new normal. And that is completely intolerable because of the uh, damage it does to human life and to um, uh, resources. So that's, that's the orientation, the general orientation of uh, those of us who embrace uh, critical pedagogy in the Apollo Freire tradition. Yes, and you said that very early on in um, the edited book, Freire for the Classroom. Uh, where you say teaching should offer an illumination of reality that helps us and the students examine the social limits constraining us. So there was a That's sense right. even early on using Freire that um, bringing uh, the world and the world, the word and the world together was uh, an important thing. And as Freire says, my dreams of a society in which saying the word is to become involved in the decision to transform the world. Yes, absolutely right. And uh, for Paulo, for Paulo Freire, uh, saying the word meant that um, our dialogues in the classroom, our dialogic education in the classroom, had to make a very powerful, inspiring, and critical contact with the uh, reality around us. That we could not use um, the discourse in the classroom, the dialogue, to manipulate uh, mm -hmm. or to uh, mystify the uh, the students or to uh, teach them that intellectual activity was a waste of time, that it creates a greater and greater buffer between you and the conditions of your life. We have to bring the conditions of our world into the classroom in such a way that they are legible and meaningful and they call they call out from the student a uh, desire to in, engage them and uh, research them and then to use that knowledge we gain to act on them. Um, you speak of empowerment in the classroom both for uh, students and for for the teachers you know sort of a mutual mutual empowerment of both teachers and students so uh, how would you define this empowerment and, and moments when it happens? And what are obstacles to that empowerment that are happening now, as especially given um, what's happening in the Department of Education and how that's trickling down very quickly into higher education and not just K through 12? Yes. Uh, so, uh, look, at this moment we have a very aggressive regime uh, from the top down trying to uh, impose uh, more and more standardized testing on all levels of education and also to vocationalize 
uh, curriculum mm -hmm. so that uh, students and teachers are uh, restricted in the questions or the materials or the issues they, they can entertain because uh, we're being ruled by the marketplace in this mm -hmm. neoliberal era. The neoliberalism wants us to accept the religion of the marketplace, which says the only thing that counts is the, is the revenue stream. The revenue stream means uh, in curriculum uh, how well are you being trained for a job and then go off there to the job market and uh, get, get hired. And uh, that's, uh, that's attempting to limit our ability to raise questions about the entire uh, arrangement of uh, society that, in, in fact, policy questions are being um, uh, captured or conquered by fewer and fewer people so that all the rest of us at the ground level of education are not allowed to introduce policy questions uh, into our everyday uh, curriculum. Now, policy question means questioning the status quo. Uh, under what policies are things uh, organized now, are things arranged? Uh, and how, how is that uh, producing the lives that we're living and so on? And uh, that's the level at which I, I want to uh, insist um, educators make their, uh, achieve their civic responsibility to uh, improve society and to generate among us the desire to um, ask questions and uh, make make a difference. Paulo Ferry said uh, uh, that uh, critical pedagogy is uh, invites students to take history in their own hands. Yeah, that history is not to you or for you, but you make your own history. Understanding your your position in society and using the powers uh, available uh, to you to. Um, compel society to move in um, a, um, a healthy direction for uh, the majority and not for the, not for the minority. Could you say more about the minority, especially in the current situation? Now, look, that minority now has enormous wealth and power, and it prefers uh, to restrict what teachers can do in the classroom by imposing standardized testing and uh, the a, a mandated curriculum for what's appropriate to, to teach mm -hmm. and to make us more fearful about raising criti critical questions about the status quo. Because those questions uh, can indeed lead uh, people to become activist citizens who uh, demand that policy or the policy makers address their needs. So we've had uh, over the last 40 years great uh, continuing attempt to, uh, to narrow and limit what education in America uh, in our classrooms can uh, can do because um, this what we are we are a gigantic subsector of society who are uh, developing uh, the next generation of the workforce and of the citizenry. Yeah. So if uh, if our development our human development goes in a critical direction. We will develop a citizenry that is not afraid of the government and not afraid to question the status quo and looks very closely at how policies being made from the, the top, down, top down are injuring our families and uh, our, our communities. So there's a way of restricting that possibility from the top down, and that is yeah. to demand uh, narrow job training <clears throat> narrow job training to make mm -hmm. us all have very um, limited 
limited aspirations, limited uh, expectations from uh, society that uh, our only task here is to figure out how to do this job that's being asked for us and not to ask uh, any big questions about the consequences of our labor or why th things need to be done this way. The critical pedagogy uh, is opposed to this uh, narrowing of uh, yeah. education into vocational and testing <laughs> regimes that really put the uh, students and teachers on the defensive off balance and, and having to be um, measured and managed from the top down. Yeah. Well, then, do you, do you think we've made uh, any progress during the time you've been working with or on critical pedagogy since, as you say, uh, things seem worse today than they were uh, 30 or more years ago? Teachers have less freedom to teach, as you said. Students' lives are ignored in the curriculum. Segregation or the resegregation of the schools, as Jonathan Kozel calls it. Uh, is worse today than it has been in years. Uh, so what, if anything, has improved and where is the hope for those uh, who are doing this kind of education? You know, from those at uh, Rethinking Schools and um, the Zen, Howard Zen Education Project, Teaching for Change, uh, those organizations, um, you know, are trying to find a way in, in, these, in these times. But where do you, where do you see the hope and, and uh, especially in higher education, of um, uh, faculty who are centering around these issues? Um, uh, critical pedagogy is what Paulo Freire called a situated pedagogy. It's <laughs> situated in the conditions of our locale. Exactly where we teach, we have to do what Paulo Freire called untested feasibility. <laughs> untested means that we uh, we intervene in our locale to see what's possible here. Where are the limits to uh, raising critical questions, to questioning the status quo, to teaching for activist knowledge that uh, in embraces uh, democracy, equality, ecology, and peace. Mm -hmm. Now, whatever situation we're in is, is rare, rarely identical to other situations. So yeah. we have to uh, deal with our locales uh, to con construct our everyday, that's the, that's the first thing, that some locales are more open uh, than others, some are more restricted. So we have to meet with other colleagues who are interested in the same project and then get a feel for what kind of uh, interventions and experiments and innovations can uh, meet the, uh, overcome the limits and uh, use the options, the opportunities that are actually at this, at this locale. Uh, the, the second thing is, is that uh, suppose uh, we're, um, we, we want to be like um, democratic educators and critical, critical educators. There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a certain recognition that, that, uh, that I think orients or clarifies uh, our, our predicament. And I put it something like this, that um, classrooms cannot be managed from the outside mm -hmm. and classrooms can be defended from the inside. So we have to we have a dual kind of location that we have to uh, invest ourselves in uh, to make e to make the classroom work. At this moment, or at least for the for last forty years, our classrooms have been invaded aggressive authority from the top down, imposing standardized testing and vocationalism that mm -hmm. cuts on the public sector. Okay. So we can't proper, that's not properly a pedagogical issue. We can't solve that problem 
by excellent teaching in the classroom. So what we yeah. we have no choice but to leave the classroom, form ourselves into uh, into um, uh, unions and organizations that fight in the policy arenas of society where those political uh, questions are uh, enga engaged. And that's the first thing. So outside the classroom is where the power uh, lies that will, that will determine whether the classroom, a critical classroom is possible or not. Now inside the classroom we have to uh, also um, educate each other as, uh, as uh, critical teachers as to uh, how do we do this practice every day in the, in the circumstances, the conditions, the situations find ourselves in? What are our concrete conditions here uh, that limit us and also provide us with opportunities and through, through what kinds of activities? Now, teaching is a very uh, concrete undertaking. It's, it's yeah. a work practice. So we have to say, okay, the first day of class, we're doing these kind of things. Then we're scaffolding towards the goals uh -huh. in this sub uh, and uh, using these methods, these techniques, so it's okay, it's all right to talk about techniques and materials that we <laughs> use and how we sequence them and how we scaffold them and how we know to go in this direction or that direction. That's good because inside the classroom, unless we be very skilled in the art and the science of uh, pedagogy, we, we can't be good critical teachers. Well, could you say more about movement building for social change that's going on uh, in education and that's needed in education, uh, especially around union building and organizing? But we can't be good critical teachers unless we leave the classroom and fight for the power and the right to be allowed to be those kind of teachers. So that's why I say no classroom can be managed from the outside. It must be figured out from the inside, given the, the students and the situation there. And no classroom can be... Um, defended from the inside that we have no choice uh, mm -hmm. but to leave. Yeah. In the past 40, mm -hmm. past 40 years, our teacher unions have uh, abandoned us uh, and refused to become, uh, to organize us to fight for the right to do this kind of teaching and so on. So at the moment, we're, we're dis, um, disarmed or disabled by our, um, our teacher union chiefs who uh, represent the status quo and don't represent, represent students and teachers. So uh, one thing, one task for us is to, we, we must uh, work inside our unions to oust the current leadership and replace them with authentic labor leaders who understand that that terrible war is being waged on public education, K-12 and in public higher education in general, that um, for privatization, for charters, for budget cuts and the transfer of, uh, of um, uh, tax monies to private sector and so on, and that uh, we need fighting unions, fighting teacher unions that go after doing this. We do not have that now for decades, and that is why we are in a terrible predicament because we we don't we're not organized to use our enormous power. We are three million teachers at the K twelve level and we are about a million teachers at the higher education level, so we're an enormous mass. And the, the unions we have are not, the union chiefs we have are refusing to organize us into a, an oppositional force equal to our numbers and, and power. So we are in that. That's the outside the classroom predicament um, that, uh, that we're in. In addition, outside the mass movements that won so many gains in the 60s and 70s 
disintegrated in, in uh, by 1980, and a new uh, policy that we all refer to as neoliberalism began to uh, gain began to gain uh, ground, and that we have to figure out again how to um, compose a coalition of forces. Uh, <laughs> in the women's community, uh, which has exerted such important leadership in the last month or two, uh, in the among the Black Lives Matter movement, which has asserted the, uh, the, pre the, uh, the, the predicament of uh, police brutality against uh, inner city uh, folks, in the labor movement, which has um, been taking such a beating in the last decades and so on. So what we have to do is uh, learn how to build those coalitions outside the classroom. And those those are the reasons that we're in a uh, we're in such a fix now because we have lost the pol the organized political power of mass movements that we had in the '60s and '70s, which won considerable gains to democratize and equalize the uh, the, the nation. Uh, we have to rebuild that, and uh, then we'll turn the tide. It seems like there's uh, a real movement uh, and moment for that since November 8th, um, and the coalitions that are being built are across groups uh, from Black Lives Matter, Palestinian Lives Matter, feminist groups, etc. But I want to get to uh, the issue of the democratic classroom that you talk about in a lot of your work, um, and a quote. Um, this democratic disturbance of the teacher-centered classroom confirms a primary goal of shared authority, to restructure education into something done by and with students rather than by the teacher for and over them. So um, in, in saying that, and this is a quote I have in my office up on my wall to remind me every time I walk into oh. the classroom, um, that and the frary yeah. word in the world quote. Um, and so I want to get um, also to the issue that you talk about in your book when students have power uh, about negotiating the classroom, you know, being mutually accountable with students um, about what goes on in the class. And in that book, of course, you talk about uh, the Siberia syndrome when you walk into a class in a windowless basement with students who don't want to be there, you know, and have had no say in how they're there and how um, you began to get to use that as the context of the class. So if you could um, share with us a little bit about um, what it means and you're thinking as you've done this uh, over many years of sharing power, democratizing authority, and mediating resistance. Um, because many schools have now, as my college does, a disruptive student statement. And it's a policy statement that kind of outlines what, and it's, it's a power imbalance um, on paper. You know, this if a student is disruptive and, the, and it, you know, and that's a wide range of things, right? Um, and disruption is seen as a negative and not as a positive, as a resistance to, um, you know, undemocratic and um, uh, their own powerlessness. Uh, so how do, how do we in the classroom begin to think about um, getting out of those kind of top-down hierarchical and patriarchal, not democratic models. 
uh, and reimagine what it would be like to uh, invite students into the power sharing in the classroom. Yes. Okay. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, pioneered a problem-posing method. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he was uh, a answering a question that's at the heart of the teaching enterprise, uh, which is, where does subject matter come from and what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. That's the starting point of, uh, of a teacher's work, the teacher's practice. Where does subject matter come from and what, what do we do with it? Now, a furry's uh, culture circles, a furry's literacy teams moved into uh, areas, uh, and he, he was working in adult education in factories and, and villages, areas, and then uh, before any class was offered, they did a, a detailed study of the area uh, from which they extracted what he called generative words and generative themes mm -hmm. that be, that the foundation of the curriculum. The curriculum was built on the on a kind of a socio-cultural, sociolinguistic research that the teachers were obliged to they offered the first literacy class. So that means where the first uh, uh, the first students in this whole project were the teachers. The teachers had to study students and become familiar with the their, the student situation before the teachers, uh, from Ferry's point of view, were competent to offer a, uh, a critical pedagogy. And then we, they had to consult with the students about, uh, do I get it right that this word means this mm -hmm. when you use it, like, and figure out the housing um, uh, crisis locally, uh, how people earned money, how people got food, how they ate, and so on and so on. Okay, so uh, then, so the question is, where does subject matter come from? It comes uh, from uh, the everyday life of the of the students. Now, uh, that's that's a form that's uh, most appropriate popular education, uh, in, where uh, it's uh, what I call. Um, non-formal education. We have three kinds of education. We have formal education that's uh, undertaken in institutions that have uh, uh, schedules and classes and offer grades and credits for classes taken and they offer degree tracks and have requirements, midterms, finals, papers due and so on. That's the very uh, familiar, very, very large uh, bureaucratic uh, structure we call uh, formal education. And then we have informal education, which is the, the vast knowledge that everybody gains just from experience, mm -hmm. from the families in the communities we grow up in, the work that we do every day. And that's informal because nobody announces themselves as like a, a hired teacher, and it's not institutional. It's just experiential. Then we have a whole sector called non-formal education, which is organized but not bureaucratic, which has a structure, but it's not institutional. And it may or probably doesn't offer grades or credits or something like that. And that's where Freire did his work in what I call the non-formal education yeah. uh, sector and so on. Okay, now that is uh, that means that uh, he goes and uh, he has uh, certain uh, freedoms and restrictions that are different. All of us educators who are inside formal institutions which uh, appoint us as officers of the institution, like I'm a professor, and I'm tenured, mm -hmm. and I have to give at the end of the semester, and I'm supposed to meet the class at certain hours in certain rooms, and my, and I'm given a title for my class, and I'm also given yeah. a required a required syllabus. Because I'm a senior faculty and old, I mm -hmm. ignore the required syllabus and <laughs> just use my own, mm -hmm. wait for people. 
every I'm more or less ignored. They just decide to leave me alone because mm-hmm. uh, I've been there so long and uh, whatever. Uh, but men, the everybody else is teaching this class called uh, first year composition is given a, a syllabus that they have to follow. And mm-hmm. the younger you are, the more female you are, the more dark skinned you are, the less authority you bring to the classroom to ignore the syllabus, ignore the ignore the um, uh, the um, uh, department structure, and just do what you want. So exactly. I have the most the most freedom possible. I'm a white man. I'm old, I'm tenured, I'm mm-hmm. a senior faculty, I'm able-bodied, I'm a, I, I, English is my native language, and so on. So if anybody brings, carries the most authority possible for a teacher into the classroom, I, I am that person. Yeah. So the only way I can justify uh, all this, uh, what um, Peggy McIntosh called the uh, unearned privilege, hmm. uh, white privilege, yeah. to take, use it to make, to make a difference and so on. So I've been using it and uh, waiting, you know, and along the way I have been punished and I have received the notice that I must stop this practice and I must not allow that, I can't do that, and so on and so on. So uh, occasionally I'm, I'm, I'm zeroed in on and things that I do in, in my classrooms are forbidden and so on and so on. Uh, This ends part one of our discussion with Ira Shore. We've been talking with him about critical pedagogy and democracy and shared power in the classroom. In part two, we will talk more with Ira about issues of power, authority, and privilege. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the inaugural broadcast of Nothing Never Happens. I'm Tina Pippin, your host, This program was produced by Calvin Bergamy, audio engineer China Wilson, with original music composed and performed by Lance Eric Hagen. (laughs) ¶¶